Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What happens when you combine a thousands-year-old contemplative tradition with exponentially changing technology and an increasingly global and interconnected world? Since 2007, Buddhist Geeks has been striving to come up with answers to this question, and we've only just begun. Over the years, we've recorded hundreds of talks and conversations on the development of Buddhism in the 21st century. These recordings, in the form of our weekly podcast, are downloaded over a million times each year, accounting for several million total downloads. If you've been positively impacted by Buddhist Geeks, we ask that you consider becoming a monthly micro-patron. As little as $2 a month helps us reach important milestones related to the production of the weekly podcast, from scheduling guests to crafting thoughtful questions to recording, editing, and publishing the finished episode. Your support enables us to take the time we need to create something worth listening to. Being a patron is about supporting those things that are most important to you, that you feel have the potential to change the world for the better. Come put your money where your heart is. Patreon.com slash BuddhistGeeks. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today over Skype with a very special guest. I'm here with Jessica Mori. Jessica, um, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with the Buddhist Geeks. Thank you, Vincent. It's great to be here. Yeah. And, you know, we had a conversation, it must have been a couple months ago now, about what we wanted to explore today. And, and we're really going to kind of explore both the work you're doing with the uh, In Inward Bound program and also talk a bit about relational mindfulness. But first, I wanted to you know, hear a little bit about your background and, and how this project, Inward Bound uh, Mindfulness Education, came to be. Um, and just to mention, you know, your role with that organization is you're the executive director, and you're also uh, teaching many of the classes and workshops and uh, retreats. So you're kind of in that dual role, which I totally understand, of uh, being on the organizational side and on the, the kind of pedagogy side. So it must be a small organization, I'm guessing. Yes, we're very small. At this point, we have... Well, there's two full-time staff, but then our network of teachers, volunteers, and staff is pretty broad. So it's probably about another hundred folks who come on retreats and do staff, staffing and teaching with us. Nice. And I remember, you know, growing up, Outward Bound was the cool thing, right? Um, mm -hmm. Going out into the wilderness and um, spending a lot of time, you know, kind of journeying outward. And I've heard this phrase, Inward Bound, used uh, several times before. Um, and, and I was wondering if you could kind of say a bit about, you know, what is this program? Is it, is it, is it dedicated toward, you know, younger people as Outward Bound is and how it came to be as well? Yeah. So we are, our primary focus is with teenagers. So 15 to 19. And we also do some work with young adults with going up to about 24 and college age. Um, but that is our primary focus or also parents of teenagers, teachers, uh, therapists who work with adolescents. Um, and it's definitely a playoff of Outward Bound when we came up with the, the name Inward Bound. Our primary program is a week-long retreat with teenagers. 
And uh, we actually are doing more. We've started to even incorporate more of the wilderness aspect. So last year we initiated a 10-day backpacking wilderness retreat for teenagers. We go out into the immigrant wilderness in uh, the Sierras in California and do practice sitting, walking, relational mindfulness, uh, and nature awareness uh, as we backpack. Okay, that's cool. And your background, uh, similar to mine, is in the insight meditation tradition. So uh, from what I remember, you said you really got your start with practice during a teen retreat yourself. Yeah, so the the, the real origin of Inward Bound is that um, the Insight Meditation Society in Massachusetts started teen retreats with a teacher named Michelle McDonald uh, in about 25 years ago. So um, the the late 80s, early 90s. And I was one of the first teens on those early retreats. Um, and I totally fell in love with the practice. So I went back every year. And then I went on to do a lot of uh, Vipassana insight practice. I went to Asia, ordained for a period of time in Burma, uh, and did a three-month in college. So I really dove deep into practice when I was younger. Uh, and then for a period of time, I left that and I actually went and got a degree in engineering and worked in environmental engineering and clean energy for about 10 years before the opportunity to come back into this work uh, came up. Okay, very interesting. Uh, when, when you went to that first teen retreat, was that something that you wanted to do or was that something that you had family or parents or friends that, that were kind of encouraging you to do? Yes, my mom, it was both. It was a little bit of both. So my mom was a, would practice at um, IMS every year and uh, so when they started the teen retreat, she really encouraged myself and my brothers and sister to go. And so we all did the retreats when we were younger. Um, and it was, for me, it was definitely, I was really interested in it. I'd actually watched my mom meditate and wanted to know what she was doing and had been quite interested in it from even younger. Okay, that's interesting. So this is, I mean, this is an interesting area, I imagine, you know, with, with teens, right? Because I remember <laughs> being a teen, it wasn't, too, too long ago, well, I guess. But, you know, I remember just the, the, the sheer amount of rebelliousness. You must not have been as rebellious uh, because I would have done the opposite of what my mom was doing. Yeah, I would say I, I probably went, I was more on the spectrum of uh, pleasing, a kind of high achieving, uh, good kid spectrum. But uh, my brother who went with me the first couple of years that I went on teen retreat, he was a year and a half older than me. Uh, he was the opposite end of the spectrum, totally rebellious, you know, had art, was already getting into tussles with uh, the police and just kind of pushing every single boundary. Uh, so my mom really had to push him into going to the teen retreat. And, and in a way, I feel like his experience on teen retreat is what has given me the most inspiration and faith in the power of this model for, for youth. Because I, I remember we first got there and right away he was like, he wanted to go and he had his, his Walkman and my mom was trying to take it away from him to take it home. Uh, back in the day when there was such a thing called a Walkman, <laughs> people don't know what that is. Uh, so right away, the staff, there was actually a, a retired policeman who's one of the staff, um, who's now a teacher in New Mexico. And he, uh, just the way that he related to my brother and just swooped in and shifted the resistance and kind of got alongside my brother was so incredible to see and so it made it so my brother was willing to stay and 
had a really incredible time and just how his attitude shifted. And I, I often refer to when we get home from the retreat, he'd take out the trash and do the dishes without even being asked. It was just a huge shift in, in the way that he was relating. Mm, okay, interesting. So the other thing that you said that I, th- I thought was quite fascinating and, and I could really relate to, and I'm sure many people could, is you know this kind of almost like an archetypal story there of, of, of going really deep at a certain point you know, with practice and then coming mm-hmm. kind of out and going back into the world, into another area, you know, you know, in your case, environmental engineering. Um, and then it sounds like in some ways coming again full circle with the work you're doing now. Um, have you seen that kind of, you know, arc playing out in, in, your, in your experience? Yeah, definitely. And I think it, there was a consciousness to it as I, I actually went to Asia before I went to college and it was a very conscious decision to come back and go to school and try to make an impact in the world um, with the education that I had. But there was a sense in my mind, kind of in the back of my mind, well, at some point, you know, I'll go back to practice, like when I'm older, after I've had a career or something. And all of these pieces came together. About three years ago, I started staffing the teen retreats when they came. They were spread to California and Virginia. So I started staffing from D.C. We formed a nonprofit. We hired a, a young guy to be our executive director, and he actually became really ill and was in a coma and had a heart transplant. It was a pretty dramatic uh, situation. And at that same time, a few of my friends, it was like the, the holy messengers came and visited. Two of my friends, um, one was diagnosed with leukemia, so we started going through chemo with her. She's actually my roommate, so we were living with her. She was going through it. And uh, my now husband was just recovering from lymphoma, where he had almost died. And there was some awareness for me that was like, wait a minute, there might not be this later after a career, at which point I'll do this thing that is so important and central to me. So, um, so when I, I was asked by one of the other board members, would I quit my job and take over the executive director role? Um, after a lot of soul searching and fear, I decided, yeah, like, why not? This is like, this is the thing that I feel the most passionately about and also have the most fun doing. So, Mm. so, so it really, in some sense, um, took the idea of being able to come back around later, you know, having that idea kind of be being shaken by all the the people around you, you know, kind of um, going through these unexpected health crises. Right. Exactly. That makes sense. And they were all in their late twenties, early thirties, like healthy. It was definitely a wake up. Mm. So, you know, one of the things uh, that I find really interesting about what you're doing and it's something that I've, just started to notice as a trend in the conversations I've been having on Buddhist Geeks is this focus on relational uh, mindfulness, as you mentioned, you know, th- that you're going onto these retreats and, and not just sitting silently or sitting um, in quietude, but also bringing that practice into the relational or into the social sphere. And, you know, there have been, I'd say, half dozen or so people that I've talked to who are, are doing something similar, experimenting with, with bringing that kind of meditative awareness into the social space and social arena. And, and, and what I found doing that um, is it illuminates like this whole other dimension of experience. And it's so much, 
it's so rich because our lives are so relational. Um, and I wanted to hear, you know, a bit about your experience with that. How did you, you know, how did you come upon that? Was that just kind of part of your experience doing the teen retreats early on? Or is that something that you kind of felt like there was a need for as you began, you know, developing um, the program? And, 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 you know, just take us through, you know, what, what is it like uh, also to, to do relational mindfulness? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this relational aspect of, of teen retreat has always been an element. Um, as you can imagine, it would be, I think it might be impossible to get a group of teenagers to be silent, to be totally silent for, for four or five, six days. <laughs> um, and because of, at that time of uh, development in adolescence, the, the social is central. It's such a um, central aspect of, of uh, how they're growing and learning and developing and discovering who they are in relationship with other people. So um, it just kind of is a natural outgrowth of working with teenagers. Um, and so the retreats had always been structured to have periods of silence and periods of talking. And I've been inward bound and myself. We're really lucky. We actually inherited this 20 year growth model that um, a few key folks like Michelle McDonald, uh, Temple Smith, Marv Belzer, uh, Diana Winston, who are now all teachers in the insight tradition, Marv and Diana are at UCLA, the Mindful Awareness Research Center, Temple's at Spirit Rock on the Teachers Council. Um, they are the ones that really, over the course of 20 years, modified, adapted, and learned how to run the retreats. And a big element that they, especially Temple and Marv, have been working on is how to shape the relational piece. So there's more um, structure and facilitation in that piece. When we started, when I was a teen, we would have these small groups. Michelle McDonald was clear, like teens need this social interaction, but they were kind of like group interviews and sort of boring. (laughs) Uh, And uh, at some point, Marvin Temple started bringing in these different facilitated activities, like um, if you really knew me, lightning rounds where people go around and answer questions about themselves and uh, something that we call hot seat, which is one person is on the hot seat and everyone else gets to ask them questions. Mm -hmm. And so those have just become standard parts of what we do in our small group, which is two hours a day, every day on retreat. Uh, And it's often the the favorite and most powerful part of the practice of the whole retreat for the teenagers. And Mm -hmm. and do you have a sense for, for why that is? Yeah, I think, uh, so for one thing, the experience of having people be interested in you and ask you questions about your life and really attend. Like, so, of course, as we're doing mindfulness, one thing that we're cultivating is this ability to concentrate and focus our attention in a steady way on an object. And so we use that tool that we're working with the teens to develop to focus on another human, you know, on this other person's life their thoughts, their feelings, their uh, dreams, their struggles. And uh, so there's a quality of the level of attention that the teens are able to offer each other in that context that's really powerful to just really be seen. And at the same time, the other piece that we're really cultivating is this quality of acceptance, kind of radical acceptance and appreciation of things as they are. So you're both receiving this experience of people's focused attention and it's it has a quality a tone of uh acceptance and kindness 
And I, that's like one of the most healing things I think a human can experience. Mm. 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 And the nature part is also quite interesting because um, th- there's, there's one teacher that I've, I've worked a bit with and we've had her on the show a few times. She, do, she does something in, in southern Utah each year, a, a three-week retreat. And the mm-hmm. first week is uh, just z- traditional Zen practice. Mm-hmm. She calls that the first person practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the second week is relational practice. And it's, you know, the Zen continues, but it's much more augmented by a lot of relational practice and facilitation. And then the third week is a nature retreat, going out in nature and, and continuing to do the Zen and relational stuff, but, but much more focus on, on kind of being outdoors and um, kind of the communal, communing with nature, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be really interesting, you know, that th- those three perspectives or those three experiences um, kind of being integrated in some way, in some formal way. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sounds like in, in many ways you all are kind of uh, finding yourself going toward a similar type of model. I find that mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah, it's as, we think about it, I think about it as like concentric circles of awareness, right? So that we begin with this deep knowing and understanding of our own internal experience. And then out of that insight and knowing, we're able to know and understand the, the other humans around us. So, uh, you know, there's all sorts of social cognition that we have in our brains to make that possible and to develop empathy and compassion. And that all of that's really coming online, especially in teenagers. Then the final part of spreading that compassion and care is to the broader world around us. So the natural environment uh, has just been a natural, to me, development it's been so exciting. And also because this has been my passion, the other passion for me my whole life has been environmental protection and, and climate change and clean energy. But so then what's been so exciting for me of having that be central to what we're doing on teen retreat and just feeling like this is what's so important to be doing. Uh, I think also because teenagers have in a way, almost a natural social conscience, you know, they have that, this idealism and wish to make an impact in the world. And they see what's not okay in the world and they want to change it. You know, they haven't gotten to the point of being jaded or um, exhausted by the struggles. So there's a natural energy there to direct towards like awareness and then care. And then what do you want to do about that? So what's been really exciting to me at the same time, I've been doing a lot of study of um, suttas and then particularly the Satipatthana Sutta which is really the foundational text of basically the mindfulness movement in the U.S. Um, so there's the, the four foundations of mindfulness that the Buddha taught. And in each foundation, it's taught, the, the refrain is internally aware of your body and then externally aware of the body and then internally and externally aware of the body. And then it goes through Vedana or feeling tone and mind and dharmas. And in each one, first internally, then externally, and then internally and externally. And the way that this has been sort of taught in the insight tradition is that externally has meant anything like on the outside of your skin. But the way that um, it's now being understood, there's a Analayo's new book, Perspectives on Satipatthana Sutta, he really emphasizes that his understanding from the early texts is that external actually means other people. But the Buddha actually meant okay, be aware of your own body, your own feelings, your own mind, and now have that same level of uh, focused awareness and understanding with other people's bodies, feelings, and minds. Um, 
So it's just been really neat to see like that this is actually what was taught originally. This is integral to this foundational text that we're, this whole movement is built off of. Yeah, it's, it's, it's so fascinating to me that the way that certain things kind of come back online uh, or get re-emphasized or emphasized in new ways, and and I I I, I use that same I use that same text uh, to kind of uh, not to validate, but just to kind of point out that of course uh, people were aware of of this issue of needing to be to bring mindfulness to to each other. Um, um, and, and what what I find really fascinating about that, like looking at the history of this tradition is in some ways it did kind of get de-emphasized um, mm-hmm. with, with the real focus on like hardcore, you know, retreat practice. But I imagine, you know, prior to that um, kind of shift in Burma, you know, in the 1900s, that, you know, in the monasteries, of course, like so much of practice is, is interpersonal and going out, you know, uh, on alms round and, you know, however that played out. Um, so it is kind of cool to see that, kind of understanding of that coming back online mm-hmm. um, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You know, it's been interesting. I've been reflecting um, with a good friend of mine who's one of our staff and teachers on teen retreat about maybe why that's shifting. And if you think about even early 1900s, Burma, that culture, and many of the cultures from which Buddhism comes to us, they, they are already, already extremely community-oriented. And so they, like, exactly as you said, they're living in these monasteries almost all of the time. They're deeply in relationship and community and working, working their practice in that way. And then sometimes they would go have a silent retreat away from everyone else, which was a kind of active shift from their normal lives of being um, so relational. But when you look at our society today, in some ways, it's like the opposite. Like we're living in a, in a way that's very much more segregated and disconnected from community and uh, relationship. The, the ways that our, our lives can be structured nowadays. So in a way, it makes sense that now we go on retreat, we can actually go on retreat and, and have an opportunity to connect deeply with other people because we're not doing that in our daily lives. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting point um, because uh, we do have such different cultures and there is clearly, you know, focus in our culture on, in, on the individual and, and, and in that culture, it's much more collectivist. So uh, that, makes, that makes just a lot of sense. And I guess the question that arises too is, you know, for those people that are doing a lot of silent retreat practice, and I've often wondered this, um, mm-hmm. you know, is there, can there be something actually a little harmful about going from a very individual orientation, you know, where there's some degree of isolation already and then going into an environment that, you know, is in some sense extremely isolated. You know, you, you really are just with yourself. You're with other people perhaps too. Um, but in some ways, like you're just there with your own mind and own experience um, <laughs> primarily. Uh, I've sometimes wondered, you know, does that in some sense uh, cause a bit of a psychological backlash or something? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't I mean, what I could see is that people who are naturally disinclined to connect it gives them an easy out um but rather than a backlash what i see is that it, it really limits the ability of people to integrate their practice into their lives like um and i and i just I feel like you've, i've seen there's examples of this 
throughout the community of people who might have an incredible meditative insight, but then their lives are not something that I would want to necessarily model or, or their relationships, you know? So for me, what's really important is how is that showing up in the way that I'm interacting with people and the way that I'm living my life? Um, how is it informing? See this level of integration, which I think is all like you're saying, there's these kind of trends in, uh, in practice and then, um, sort of the movement. I do feel like our generation, part of our emphasis is on, uh, integration that we've seen a lot of what happens when there isn't integration and how harmful and painful that can be. And I feel like we're more like, I see more people being deep practitioners and having full-time jobs or having families and, um, you know, being in community and really trying to take what they're learning on the three month silent retreat and have a direct impact on how they live their lives. Yes. Yes. No, I've, I've noticed the same thing. It's, uh, such a fascinating shift. Um, and it seems like also, you know, this isn't happening just within like the Buddhist circles. It seems to be happening like across the board in many different um, traditions, you know, where the, the focus is like away from this sort of transcendent realization, mm-hmm. you know, even nirvana as this thing that is beyond form to, you know, really like imminence, being in the world, being in relationships, being online, being, you know, being in whatever context we find ourselves in. And in some ways, uh, what I found challenging about that, and I'd be curious to hear your take, is part of the models that we've inherited do have a transcendent focus in them. You know, they do still to some degree emphasize, prioritize, um, make more important in some ways mm-hmm. this kind of transcendent experience not experience, but, but this waking up to something beyond, you know, the conditions and forms of our lives. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I feel the tension of that often and in, in, in sort of reminding myself that, you know, retreat practice does, isn't necessarily the, a better way of going than, you know, than the practice of, of my life and being in a relationship and working. Um, and sometimes I, I'm not sure if I completely buy that mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> too. Yeah. So, um, what, what's your, sure. what's your, what's your experience with this? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely see that and it was particularly a struggle for me when I was younger. Cause when I was in, while I was in Asia, I ordained for a period of time and that was, I loved it. It was some of the best time of my life. Uh, interestingly, but in a way what I could see, I could see really clearly at the same time that it was, um, that there was an element of like running away from the struggles of what being in the world means. And so there was this, also this interest of like, that's not, I don't want to have that as the motivation for why I'm doing this. Even though, you know, there's all sorts of teachings about like the healthy desire for seclusion and all these kinds of things. But, um, so I, I really see that. I think, I think what's been a balancing factor for me is I, I've, I've also always been really interested in, um, goddess traditions and, and these earth-based traditions as a kind of direct counterbalance to these, the transcendent 
Uh, and I was raised Catholic. So um, that's certainly a huge aspect of Catholicism, Christianity, is this transcendence. So I've, yeah, I've long been interested in, in the whole concept of like the masculine and the feminine and the kind of reemergence of valuing the feminine, which is more earth-based, more present, more grounded, more like the messy aspects of life. Um, I feel like that almost feminist, eco-feminist, I studied a lot of eco-feminism in college, has counterbalanced the transcendence. And my mind has a kind of unique capacity to not care <laughs> about I don't, I don't struggle that much with like, well, how does this fit with my belief, you know, my Buddhist practice or I'm just like, I don't know. I like it. It works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's not how your, that's not how your mind's wired to, to kind of right. worry about those things. Exactly. Congratulations. Because <laughs> <laughs> people keep bringing that up. Well, how does that, I'm like, I don't know. I guess, I guess you're right. They kind of contradict each other, but works for me. So, Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 really interesting, and I appreciate you bringing that up. And it's uh, d- definitely something something I've, I've struggled with, and I've seen a lot of other folks uh, struggle with. You know how how to how to live in the world and to uh, kind of be embodied and be in relationship um, and be in the mess of it, uh, whilst simultaneously valuing this kind of renunciative or semi-renunciative mm-hmm. um, practice. So. Um, you know, one one other thing I wanted to go back and ask you about because I, I was curious um, when when you're doing the teen retreats and you all are like in nature or or, or incorporating that, um, do the issues of climate change and environmental impact do those things come up as part of the retreat or they naturally come up? What what's your experience of that? Yeah, um, for the most part, we've let it come up naturally, and. There, so one part of a teen retreat also, so each day there's about five hours of formal silent practice of sitting, walking meditation, uh, loving kindness meditation, yoga, and then the small group. And then the afternoon it, we do workshops, which are more kind of like your traditional camp, camp kind of stuff. And um, those are something artistic, something physical, something um, discussion-based. And they get to choose which one they want to do. And it's all based on who the staff are that come. And our staff are all volunteer. So whatever skill sets they have, they'll bring and offer a workshop. And um, it's just happened that often the, those discussions are around environmental issues. So the, t- the teens can sign up and um, have a discussion around climate change or environmental issues. Uh, certainly when we're out doing the backpacking retreats, um, it becomes much more of a a direct conversation because we we have conversations about what does leave no trace mean and you know and how does that relate okay we're out here in the wilderness we're doing this leave no trace but then we're bringing it back to the quote-unquote not wilderness and then destroying the natural environment and just kind of deeper discussions about does that this distinction we make of the wilderness and the non-wilderness like does that actually exist and what does that mean and how does that affect our actions and how much we care about uh, the natural world. So that setting creates a natural opportunity to, to discuss our impact on the planet. Um, and, and do you find, you know, maybe 
more than previous generations, even your generation? Do you find that the the teens that you're working with are, are they particularly kind of aware or interested in that topic? Like that, that I guess that's kind of what I'm most curious about. Like yeah. how how is this generation that you're working with? How are they in general? I mean, and granted, you, you've got a a subsection of folks, you know, obviously that that are coming from a particular yeah. background, even to be able to be interested in this, but. All the same, you know, what are you finding um, with how they look at this? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, my sense is that they there is just a natural uh, awareness and um, concern about the environment and um, an, an educational level that's pretty high with the youth that come on our programs. Um, but again, I, it's hard, you know, I always say it like, we work, we do, it's hard to tell how much who we work with is representative, but, um, it, it does seem like environmental consciousness is just totally built into, to who they are. And there's almost a feeling like, um, they're living on the other side of like, of the concept of untouched wilderness. That just, that doesn't, it almost doesn't exist. I mean, it certainly doesn't, as we know from climate change and environmental studies. So there's, I don't know if that's shifted a consciousness in that generation. That There's a knowledge that humans have impacted basically negatively, like every corner of the earth. And, uh, and how does that change our awareness of who we are in relationship to the earth? Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting question and i i've i wonder too you know the other thing i've, I've been curious about with you know um, new, new generations of, of folks who are looking at these issues that they've basically inherited um is this whole modern notion or the distinction between nature and like the natural world and everything else like you're talking about um i've wondered to what degree you know, new generations are questioning that distinction mm-hmm. um, because that distinction really is pretty new. I think it was like only with, you know, only in the last few hundred years did, did that distinction even start mm-hmm. to exist. And I've started getting the feeling like part of the problem might be seeing the natural world as, as this separate mm-hmm. thing and that everything that we create is somehow not natural. And so it creates this <laughs> yeah. sort of tension between mm-hmm. the natural world and the not natural world and what we really should be valuing is the natural world and all this not natural mm-hmm. stuff is the problem but in fact you know um you know humanity came out of the quote-unquote natural world and everything we're creating is thus an extension of it and you know so so in what ways is that you know is that tension felt also between the natural and the not natural you know what and how do people you know yeah. work with that i mean i think that it's it's actually exacerbated in this generation of thinking of the natural or not because because I think because of the cyber world that's now the other option you know there's the natural the not natural and then the not natural being like the cities and the buildings and then there's this totally disembodied experience of the cyber world um that they live a huge portion of their lives and I mean we all do but they don't have an alternative experience from that um so in a way i feel like that 
distinction is totally exacerbated. There's a, you can have a bigger belief that you can just live in this disembodied uh, virtual reality and who needs the trees, you know, and the birds. Um, so that I feel like that is something that we're kind of actively trying to um, counteract. And I also think there's just such a disconnect, like the level of disconnection from nature is, is getting more and more profound. The lack of uh, knowledge about the natural world. So um, one, like one of the practices that I do with them when I, a lot out on in the wilderness retreats in particular is like is the four elements or sometimes the five elements and starting with an awareness of it outside. So we like look at the lake, um, we, or we feel the rain and then, then feeling, okay, with the, the element of water in the body and how do you distinguish that in the mouth of foot or air, the air outside. And when does it become, when does the air that you're breathing in become you? Are not you? When does the heat of the sun become you or not you? You can just kind of playing with that distinction or recognition of there isn't this huge, like we are made up of all of those elements that are on the outside of us. There's no clear boundary. Yeah, that, that's also a traditional practice, right? The elemental mm-hmm. meditation. Mm-hmm. Um, so what does it do for us to connect with the natural world? The natural world in the sense of going out into wilderness and mm-hmm. being so tied to technology or uh, however that looks. You know, does it does it reinforce a separation between that world and the world we live in? Does it reconnect us with something that's important that we have to be connected to? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, does it help us bridge the gap between the different worlds we live in? You know, I guess that's the kind of question mm-hmm. I... I feel left with because sometimes I feel like the tendency to kind of to reconnect with with the wilderness and the outside world it's it seems so important and so vital because it is such an important part of part of the world and it's in some sense the foundation upon which everything else is built um, and yet you know to only emphasize that or to only like to 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 start seeing everything we've created in our modern mm-hmm. informational world as somehow bad or wrong or kind of corrupt, um, that seems to create a kind of cynicism mm-hmm. that is counterproductive in some sense. So anyway, just, yeah. just curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I think you're pointing to something that's a little deeper that we haven't fully addressed. I, I think it's more the latter of what you said, that going out there reconnects them to something that's like so vitally important um, and has, uh, so, there's so many resources in the natural world in terms of the energetics. And I mean, I, get, I guess there's all these studies about people look at trees and their nervous system calms down and their cognitive abilities go up. And so there's like the research that shows that nature has these really important impacts on us. There's the energetic experience of having that groundedness and spaciousness that soothes the mind and the body. Um, but then I mean, what we've been doing, because we have a, a big discussion with the young people as we leave the wilderness, when we come back, we do try to have this, like, just an open-ended discussion of, like, what do you, like, where, what's the boundary? What does this mean? What's the, dis- can we see that it's, you know, this is a human-created concept? And then, and then we really encourage them to go outside. You know, part of the practice when they go home is go outside. 
sit in no matter where you live, you can find a tree or some grass or basically and go spend some time in that park or by that tree. Uh, But I think, so we do encourage that, like bring that element in, but I think your point is something even bigger of like, that's still making this distinction between, you know, like my stove and my computer are not natural. If I go outside and look at the tree, that is, yeah, we haven't really addressed that. And I think that's, that's a good question. Yeah. It's what, it's one that I'm really uh, obsessed with just because it seems like so much of the problem with technology, um, so much of the problem I hear people expressing with it, it, it really comes down to in many ways, like a design, design issues, you know, like, why is it that, you know, it feels like we're so disconnected from nature when we use technology, you know, why, Mm -hmm. why haven't we designed our technology to be more, um, to be more integrated Mm -hmm. in some sense. And and I, I wonder if sometimes if part of the reason is because one, we've been disconnected from that dimension of reality, but also, too, that we see them as being completely different. And, you know, I, I'm just curious to see what, what, what might happen as, as some of these younger people do see the value of nature and start to get, you know, kind of fed up with, with the, um, the stark contrast between them. What, what happens when people start, you know, programming natural environments into their you know, into their virtual realities or, you know, <laughs> how, how might that look, you know? Um, so anyway, th- th- that's just something I'm, it's like a pet, mm-hmm. pet project to kind of understand that better. The, the thought that comes to mind just now as you're describing it is like, if there's a way to stay embodied as we interact with technology, that, that would be a kind of first step. You know, it's so, I, my experience is like, I get on my email and I'm, completely in my head like I can get hungry I can have to go to the bathroom and there's hardly an awareness of like oh I have to go to the bathroom you know let alone feeling my feet on the ground and my butt on my seat and the fact that I'm breathing and my heart is beating you know if there's a way that technology could engage more of our bodies perhaps that would be a first step After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.